and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. We hope you all enjoyed your vacation. I'm sure that they enjoyed their vacation very much. <laughs> or, or, you know, as they like to say on Car Talk, ha, we're back. <laughs> <laughs> I miss that show. You know, in reality, this week we have a new drinking game. We have a new drinking game. We do. This week, every time one of us says Australia, when we really mean Austria, take a drink. Okay. Is this really a concern? It's going to be a concern. I, I can almost see it. Okay. All righty. We'll give Austria, it a shot. Austria, Australia. Yeah, it's going to happen. I, I, by you, I think. Possibly. <laughs> Entirely. <laughs> <laughs> See, I figured I would just avoid the possibility by calling it the Red Bull Ring. But where is it? It's in Austria. <laughs> anyway. Or as your son says, der dad. Yeah, well. Speaking of which, happy Father's Day. Thank you. Um, normally we like to record Saturdays. Today we're running a little late. Well, hello, date night. Yeah, well, there's that too. <laughs> so we still haven't seen the Austria race yet. Right, well, it's still going on. Yes. It is live as we speak. So right now, as we record this, I'm going to give it away. Cars are running around a track. They are. Now you know what has happened. They are. Um, unfortunately, I had to look something up, and I saw that we had like about three laps left. Uh, Not good. Yeah, I know that too. Okay. But that's it. <laughs> anyway deeply breathing we will talk about our experience on the celebrity summit and bermuda and all the things that we did in a future show because when we there's have not some, a race i was gonna say we, we have some dead zones coming up because you know germany disappeared again uh, well not really again it's <laughs> well the country did not disappear the whole country True. did not disappear okay the race disappeared yes but we have some news to talk about that happened while we were gone. It's worth mentioning. Well, do tell. Well. Because, you know, I was on vacation, so. As much as we were all for this because, you know, we weren't fans during the refueling era and we heard all the stories about all the great things that have happened, um, the team owners have come out after meeting in Canada and looked at the FIA and CVC Capital and said, um, refueling? No. What are you, nuts? What is this? We were all for it. We liked it. We we, were, we, we, we we talked highly of it in previous shows that we wanted to see this, you know, in the hopes that maybe there would be another masa like driving down the pit lane, dragging a fuel hose incident or something along those lines that would be good for us to mock for weeks on end. Can you imagine what damage Maldonado could do with refueling? You see? <laughs> That does not make me pro-refueling, by the way. Oh. Okay. I see fire and lots of it. My point exactly. <sighs> okay. So refueling, dead. Are we Are we sure it's dead? Um, the Well, it, unless somebody overrules the team's votes, which is potential. Does but it, Todd and Bernie have equal votes to the teams if they, they united do. together? Um, they do. They do. 
there's a lot of really good reasons to not bring back refueling between concerns about passing. And they've got statistical data that shows that when refueling went away, there was a lot more passing on track and the costs and potential well, safety see, with Maldonado. And <laughs> I think we cannot underestimate the Maldonado factor. I mean, seriously. But let's be honest here. What everybody seems to say that the fans want are all in conflict with each other. Let's review. If you want refueling because of the somehow excitement of refueling, then you cannot also say, I want more passing because refueling causes the passing to happen in the pit lanes. Yes. So if you want more passing, you can't be for refueling. If you want more crashes, which seems to be something that somehow people think that they want. Get more pastors. You got to get more pastors. <laughs> you you can't have some of the safety regulations that they have. You have to have a more dramatic race. And they talk about people not wanting them to drive to tire limits and fuel limits. They want them to drive all out. Well, that comes at a cost also. And we know from statistical evidence that when they were, quote, driving all out, there still was a greater gap between the front and the mid, and there was still less passing. Well, there was a lot of talk that this over the last week because Montreal was not a fascinating race, and there was a lot. Montreal is, has always been a high fuel consumption race, right? And because there was a, not a lot going on in turn, there was no safety car. There, there was it was a relatively sedate race. By Montreal terms, nobody hit the the wall of champions, anything like that. There were a lot of radio calls to drivers to manage brakes, to manage their fuel and lift and coast and all of that. And a lot of people jumped up and down and screamed that this is what's wrong with Formula One is that they're not racing flat out. They're managing all the, the tires. They're managing the brakes. They're managing the fuel. And it's boring, and this is why. And a lot of experienced drivers – like David Cothard, um, like uh, um, Alan McNish and several others, as well as experienced journalists have come out and said, um, this isn't new. While the nature of it has changed, what is possibly more, more the problem that came out of Montreal is the FIA is broadcasting these messages. Combine that with the drivers going, well, it's not as physically challenging and as physically demanding as it was, and it somehow gives the impression to the fans that things are not being done at flat out, that, that cars are not performing at peak and all of the, because of these radio messages. But the reality is it has always been a strategy in Formula One since the early days of Formula One that you put the minimal amount of fuel possible, you underfuel the car – as much as possible for a race because it's faster than putting more fuel on it and driving flat out. You always had to manage your tires, even with the most durable tires out there. You had to manage the wear and you had to manage what you were doing with those tires. From the days of Fangio, well, it's always been an issue, but the difference is that we never heard about it because they didn't broadcast radio messages. Well, I think some of that is that we're hearing more about it. I think that people have somehow lost the idea that in the 50s, 
1950, Mm -hmm. when this thing started, getting the car to the end of the race was still the top priority. You don't do that necessarily driving every lap on the edge. Yeah. I'm sorry. Even Nicky Lauda, when he was racing Hunt, said that, you know, there's an acceptable limit. You have to run at 70 or 80 percent because if you ran every lap on the edge, you couldn't get the car to the end of the race. Yeah. And you don't you forget that somehow less drama, maybe, but it's still dramatic. It's just a different kind of drama. But but the thing is. For starters, I, I, I'm I, willing to bet money that there is not a single Formula One fan out there who could know watching two cars whether or not one was, was conserving via lift and coast and one was running flat out. I, yeah. Without hearing that radio message, fans don't know that that's happening. Now, the one thing that, that Kothar did say in his article that – has changed is that in the past when you had to conserve fuel and were running the cars differently lift and coast is a new thing Mm -hmm. previously it was they would short shift and by changing where their shift points were and when they were shifting impacted fuel consumption more than anything else in previous generations of cars they're not short shifting now they're doing the lift and coast i wonder if some of it is the term yeah Short shifting implies that there's something active. Active and that you're still driving the car where lifting coasts, by definition, you're taking your foot off the accelerator or off the throttle and you're coasting prior to entry into a turn. Right. And I think that the average person thinks in terms of what we do when we're driving our cars long distances and we put the cruise control on Mm -hmm. and... I have a sense that lift and coast is probably a very technical skill to be able to execute very well. Oh, it is. Because you have to be able to know when to take your foot off, when to put it back on, and not to give it too much as you put it back on or you're going to spin the back. All of those different details. And I'm sure that's something that's very well practiced and is it just as active as short shifting? But I think some of it may be, in fact, the terminology of it, that coasting somehow implies that we're not actively driving the car. Well, if you've driven a hybrid and you've tried to maximize your fuel economy, especially on hilly roads, mm-hmm. lift and coast is a technique that you use based on – when you're going downhill and maximizing when to, to step on the gas again to maximize your fuel economy and your performance. And if you're actually trying it and working and, and, and trying to really pull as much as you can out of the technique, you've got to concentrate. It ta- it, there is a lot of mental processing to do that calculation and to think ahead of what that road looks like to make that estimation of when to step on the gas and when to let off and, and, and still maintain your speed. Which is it, why it the takes dri- a lot of work. Which is why the drivers are saying that this is not as physically taxing, but it is a mentally taxing. Mm-hmm. And I think that people forget the other half of that sentence. It's not as physically demanding, but is more mentally demanding. We have created a sport that is mental. Yes. You know, the other thing I will add to it is many years ago, 
Top Gear did a challenge. Jeremy Clarkson, it, in specific, did a challenge. And they've, they've done two versions of this. Um, but Jeremy took, I want to say it was an Audi diesel sedan. It was a diesel car of some sort. And the challenge was to go from London to Glasgow and back on a single tank of fuel. Mm-hmm. And he did it specifically on a diesel. And the range was technically just below the distance that he needed to to complete this challenge. And he came back. He, he managed to pull it off. He was on fumes. I had a camera in the tank, and there was nothing in the tank. But he made it all the way back. And he came back, and he said, you know, the drive itself, I'm, I'm amazed that, that we did it. I didn't think it was possible. The, the drive itself was definitely not anywhere close to exciting. However, mentally, I am completely exhausted because of the amount of work and the thinking and the concentration that went into figuring out when to put step on the gas, when I could coast, and all of these other things to best maximize the fuel economy of this car. Mm. Well, I remember when they did the one to turn on the Christmas lights. Yes, up in Blackpool. And, you know, James May loves those kinds of challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, And Clarkson hated them. And so he did his level best to try to to lose, but to stop somewhere close to his house. Yes. (laughs) And he couldn't even do that. But I think he won the challenge. No, the stick did. Oh, that's right. The stick did. Not because the Stig was driving, just because the Stig was not going to deal with the fighting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he at some point he's like, okay, fine, I've wasted all this fuel. I'm going to keep going and see if I can do it. But I don't know. It's it's a fascinating study. And yet I don't know if it translates to television as easily when you are trying to do that. I'm not sure it translates to anybody outside of the car. It may not. So. Yes. Other news. For those that don't know, Force India, despite all their screaming and yelling earlier this year over the fact that Marusha was going to be running a 2014 car and how could they be allowed to do that after we did all this work and blah, blah, woof, woof, Force India is essentially running their 2014 car. Right. We've known that. But they promised that it was going to come out soon. They they were, soon? They promised I, – I believe we had heard Austria. Well, this week is Austria, and they're saying um, maybe we'll have it in Silverstone. I think that the key word there is maybe. Yeah. Um, but – Hey, but wait a minute. Hulkenberg, Force India driver, congratulations to Mr. Nico. Yes, if you have not heard, just like you probably don't know that Max Verstappen is the youngest driver in F1. <laughs> but Nico Hulkenberg, Hoken- between Canada and Austria, drove in the famed uh, Le Mans 24-hour race in what could – well, basically in a borrowed Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> he borrowed it also for the spa race as well in, yes. in this, uh, for the – the same class of cars, uh, but in the famous 24 Hours of Le Mans, took victory. He did. Out of nowhere. That is, I believe, it's it's not their num- Porsche's number one or their number two car, but their number three car. Wow. And took victory. And the in the number one car, mm-hmm. in second place. Mr. Weber. Mark Weber. Mark Weber. Poor Mark. 
And my heart breaks for Mr. Mark. I really do. But I've got to say, one of the parts of the story that I find particularly interesting and fascinating is the reminder that in previous iterations of Formula One, the drivers were drivers. They were mm-hmm. race car drivers. It, give it an engine and some wheels, and they drove it. And if they weren't driving F1, they were off doing other kinds of races. And this is something that Hulkenberg is actually reminding fans that we can drive other cars and be very successful at it. Not to mention that it does remind people that Hulkenberg himself, pretty dang good driver. Yeah. Well, yes, the drivers can drive other cars. A lot of these drivers have contracts nowadays that prevent them from doing so. Because of, I mean, if you go way back in time here, the F1 world lost Jim Clark Mm -hmm. at Hockenheim running a lower formula race because... That's what they did. They ran all these other races. He wasn't supposed to run that race. He wasn't scheduled to, but it was a race, and he had time, and he hopped in the car and went. Kimi Räikkönen is another example. He was driving WRC and got into a wreck and uh, was out of Formula One for several years because of it. Well, it's it's definitely – it adds to the risk for their longevity, but it is a reminder of their love for racing. Yeah. And for Hulkenberg particularly, I mean, the poor kid, he's had incredible success in all of the lower formulas. He's taken the title in every series he's ever run in mm-hmm. and is now relegated to a mid-pack team in Formula One. He's never had great success in getting the – he's there by merit – And yet he hasn't gotten great success in getting the top drives like he ought to have. And quite frankly, some of it's genetics. I mean, the poor boy is six feet tall. Yeah. And he weighs – David Cothard made me laugh when I listened to him. He's one of the heavier drivers. Well, he's six feet tall. I mean, look at Mark Webber. The poor boy was practically anorexic when he was driving Formula One. He looks like a different man now that he can actually carry weight on him. I know. I mean – Poor Nico. I can only imagine his diet of 500 calories a day so that he can keep the weight level. But the hybrid cars are heavier and they have to keep a light, you know, the lighter the car can be, the faster it goes. That's basic physics. You know, I got to think if if you're as we approach silly season. And yeah, that's going to be the other thing. If you're Nico Hulkenberg, if the call doesn't come in for either. Massa's seat at Williams, which apparently Nico has driven for Williams before. Mm-hmm. But if the call doesn't come in for, at the very least, Massa's seat at Williams or Kimmy's seat at Ferrari, you pick up the phone and you call Porsche and go, hey, um, remember what we just did this year? I, I want to come to, to LMP and, and drive in your series. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. I think that I, the interviews with Nico seem to say that he doesn't really want to leave Formula One until he's achieved success. That he he has the potential for success. Absolutely. But the one thing that is, I think when people start to diss Formula One for becoming all of the things that it is, they seem to forget that a champion is built not just on raw talent of the driver. But it is all the factors that play into it. If they don't have the seat in the car that can get them to the front row, they can't be a world champion. 
you could have you could put Lewis Hamilton in a Marussia and he's not a world champion. True. He could outdrive the car. I'm sure he would drive better and place better than Mary or or um Stevens. Stevens. I keep wanting to call him Stewart and he's not Stewart, he's Stevens. Um but he could drive better than where they're putting the car. But even still He's a two-time world champion driver in a bad car on a bad team. He's not going to be on the front row. Yeah. And we forget that that's not driving all out. That's not pairing the race drivers against race drivers because, and I know this is a shock, it's a team sport. <laughs> yeah. And the driver isn't all that. It, it, he is not 100% well, of the equation. The The truth is... It's a combination. It is the driver hitting his peak at the same time a team Team has nailed their design. Right. And Sebastian Vettel did that extremely well. He's getting close to it with Ferrari. I mean, the success that he is seeing at Ferrari is, yes, it is in large part due to his skill. But Ferrari has figured things out that they could not figure out last year because he wouldn't be doing as well with this same car last year. No, no. But I think that that's an important thing to remember is these are team sports. We've got a kid, Hulkenberg, who has incredible success, can literally walk onto the Le Mans circuit and say, own it. Yeah. And yet the kid can't get out of the mid pack because he's shackled by his car. Now, am I making the argument that we should have one car and then pit drivers against drivers? No, I'm not. I'm stating that we need to embrace the fact that there is there is a formula to this. And it is driver peak combined with car peak, technology peak within a team. And those two equal a championship. And those two working together seamlessly make it happen um i think that the i think personally the largest single change that needs to be made in formula one is equaling out the distribution of the payout not equal to everybody but make it based on merit make it yeah not because you've been in the sport forever that you get a bounty yeah but that's what it is. Eliminate the kicker of, well, you're Ferrari, and historically we need to have you, and that kicker of, oh, well, you were willing to sign a contract till 2022, and you weren't. You're only got a three-year contract, so you're at a – make those kickers go away and just make it a distribution of funds based on your placement and the number of points that you earn in the series. Exactly. Exactly. But then also open up some of the other pieces that allow teams to make some money. Because here's what's going to happen. You only pay, not that the distribution of wealth is great today, but you go to a pay per points Mm -hmm. system. The team that makes the most points will then have the most opportunity to enhance their car, enhance their drivers the following year. So you're going to create a class system based on you win and you move in today, you you will continue to be ahead. Mercedes is ahead this year because they were ahead last year. That's that, that theory. So you put somebody that's not in the points or is in the back end of the points. Yeah, they're going to be making more money today than they made last year when the the payouts were so skewed. 
But are they relegated to being in the spot that they are because they can't make giant leaps? Well, why not look at a model? And I, I, I don't know what the and, – and I hate to mention FIFA and, and some of the football teams use. Um, but look at a model that, say, Major League Baseball and the National uh, Basketball Association use. Team of caps. Everybody – every single team – gets a set amount of money from the league that comes from the overall broadcast revenue pool. Okay. So all of the the national networks pay a set amount of money in order to broadcast NBA games. That money is distributed to the teams, and they get the same amount of that broadcast revenue whether they win the league championship or they are the worst team in in the league. Mm Mm-hmm. So you they may s- only get fifty million if you're the worst team in the league, but by getting further up in the league, you may get a hundred million. And I know my numbers are way skewed, but you may get that as the bounty for winning the the championship. There's a separate prize fund independent of the broadcast rights. Oh, okay. That that's wh- where I was going with this. So if you win the championship, there is the the larger amount that you get for that. And you, everybody else gets a fraction until possibly the last place team gets nothing from the prize fund for their position. But they always get money for broadcast rights. They always get money for whatever merchandising deals that they sign. And all of these teams are able to sell merchandise. Even the last place team has fans that are buying merchandise. Right. You look at Manor Marusha right now, they're not even selling merchandise. You, if you want a Matter Marusha shirt, you cannot get one. It, is there anybody who's actually buying Sauber shirts right now? Or any of these? How about Toro Rosso? Does anybody buy a Toro Rosso shirt? Yeah. Those point. merchandising and licensing in these sports, because of the way they're structured and built, even the last place teams have fans. Now, granted, they also have a, consist- a, a, consist- a constituency because they represent a city. So the locals in their city are, are buying merchandise to support their team. F1 teams don't have that. Well, no, but they've got history. and Some. They, some have history, and some have that je ne sais quoi of, I just like them. Yeah. You know, for whatever reason. Um Mind you, if every T-shirt is fifty dollars, well, there's that, that issue. That's too. that's part two. You know, there's something to be said for. Here's my thought. Let let's if we owned the world, um, and we could do this, and gave all of the teams their own rights to do their own merchandising piece, mm-hmm. and Manor Marusha had their own T-shirt line. Maybe their shirts would be twenty dollars shirts. And maybe Ferrari shirts could be $50 shirts because there's a different fan base for that. But somebody coming into the sport that goes, I just want an F1 shirt, but I can't afford the $50 Ferrari shirt, might buy a Marusha shirt because it's only $20. Well, or might buy a Marusha shirt for their kid because the kid's growing. There's that. There's also the why not price it down and live off the volume at that point. Well, as, Lower yeah. your fees enough for your merchandising that you can move the volume. This is a sport that, again, Bernie Eccleston wants to go and say, we demand these big fees from our venues because this is a premium event that attracts world attention and global attention has a global... You're 100% right. You have global attention and a global audience. 
capitalize on the volume that you can then leverage from that global reach yeah and make your money that way don't make it don't take it from that view of it's a premium sport it deserves a premium price take it from the sport of or, or from the perspective of this is a sport that appeals to such a broad base i need to ap- continue to appeal and and structure my merchandising to leverage that broad base what you're saying in essence is that we need to have the powers that control formula one to stop being aspirational with their positioning and start being more mass well to stop being as aspirational they should be aspirational absolutely keep the paddock club figure out ways to make people go oh i really want to be in a paddock club but also recognize the fact that not everybody can afford to be in a paddock club or wants to be in a paddock club but they still want to support the sport and you can still make money off of those folks well that's the thing i mean in a good marketing plan you will meet the needs of those people Mm -hmm. that want the exclusivity they, they, they crave and will only engage at that exclusivity level. Mm-hmm. And that, that, yes. There's a place for that. And will also include and not have exclusivity to the exclusion of the general public. This is, this is no different than the, you know, I can relate this recently to our cruise experience. You have inside cabins for a reason. Yeah. There are people that just want to be on the boat. But you also have the top-end suites for a reason because some people want a different experience. It doesn't mean that the inside cabin people aren't valuable to the cruise line. They pay the bills just as much as the the top-end suites do. Well, to, to keep it back in the sports realm, and again, to go back to the MLB model, how many teams have revised their older stadiums or built newer stadiums specifically to bring in more of the premium skyboxes and those type things? They have realized that those boxes bring them in gobs of money. But along the same lines, they've still got plenty of the other seats. And they know that that's the bread and butter is still you can't live off of one and not the other. Well, true. and Formula One doesn't, or Bernie doesn't seem to want to recognize that. Well, Bernie's a snob, so let's just go yes. with that. But you know, going to your MLB model, some stadiums, the ones that are really good and have a good mm-hmm. base, have also figured out that there's a cachet at the low end. Also, yeah, the bleacher seats in Boston are important, Be- and they come at a premium also. Um, the being on the green monster is important Mm -hmm. and is a mark of pride to be able to be there. There are people selling their rooftops in Wrigleyville. Yeah. That, yes, I realize that's outside the MLB's purview, but being there, not even in the park is important. So you can, you can create the, I was there mentality at the general admission sitting on the lawn fan all the way up but you got to care about all of them yeah and i think that that's where formula one is struggling right now is how are they marketing to all of their fans versus the few well they need to stop viewing it as exclusively or primarily a premium brand 
-hmm. That's the issue. Anyway, so moving on with Formula One and their money issues and all of that stuff, word came out this week of the possibility, because we know that Monza is in danger. Mm -hmm. Um, There are issues with the funding and the amount of money that CVC and Bernie Eccleston wants. We also know, and we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, the infamous Imola track. Yes. Really wants Formula One back. Oh, nice. Now, Imola has a bit of a black mark on them because of this is the track that in one weekend we lost Roland Ratzenberger and Senna, Ayrton Senna. Mm Mm-hmm. One weekend lost them. Now, they've done a lot of work in this track. The track is certified for F1 races. So whatever the certification that they need safety-wise, they are current and up-to-date. All the changes have been made so that they could run an F1 race today. But F1 won't talk to them. Well, apparently, there is. they have now been... Some kind of deal has been reached between Monza and Imola and they have brought it forward to to Bernie to alternate. Oh, wow. So similar to the Hockenheim-Nürburgring plan. We saw how well that worked out. That's my concern. Now, the big difference here is you've got a track that is willing to to host. You've got two tracks that are willing to host and want to host races Mm -hmm. and are just looking for a way to get Formula One's attention as opposed to a track that wants to host F1 races and another track that is having significant financial difficulties. So it, it's a bit of a different environment. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the problem that they're going to face is the first time the first time they run an F1 race at Imola, they're going to have to take on the double death weekend. I mean, that's they're going to have to face it head on and deal with it. But they're not the only track. I mean, yes, this, this was one of the, the, the deadliest. Death, it's the last death. Yes. That's the problem. It's a death that people are, it's still very fresh in their minds, fairly fresh in their minds. But it's, it's the last one. And that's the hardest piece. Is it the, is it, the only death? Is it the only track that hasn't had a death? I mean, goodness gracious, when Jackie Stewart was starting out, they were talking two and three deaths a weekend was not uncommon. Well, no, I think that was, was more it a like season? a death a year. Yeah, two or three a year. It wasn't quite a weekend. But um, people were but dying yes. much more regularly. Yes. So, I mean, kind of got to think about how many funerals Sir Jackie has been to. Actually, I misspoke. It does not... Imola made the proposal to Bernie Eccleston. Bernie claims that he has not heard from Monza in about a month. Mm. Um, He's also been asked about the possibility of some of the other Italian circuits being involved. Uh, Mugello, which has been used for some testing... Um, Bernie has ruled out specifically uh, Mugello 
being uh, included in this whole deal, whatever it may be. But Bernie appears to be losing patience with Monza. Um, He says he wants to have an Italian GP, but something has happened. I don't know. It's a little hazy. True. All right, next. Speaking of Italy, Ferrari chief Sergio Marchionne has is urging F1 to figure out what the plan is for 2017. (laughs) Get a plan already. Are we changing the rules or are we not changing the rules? Figure it out, people. Okay. It's a fair question. It's truly a fair question. So I don't know when the next meeting of the various strategy groups are, but they've got to figure something out. Not that, you know, Ferrari's going to pack up their bags and and walk away, but – well, and they're at least not suggesting that, unlike our dear friends over at Red Bull. Um, yeah. But it's um, we're halfway through the 2015 season. There's boffins out there that are needing to start to think about 2017. They need to get moving. Well, you know, part of the question is what to do about the tires. Now, Michelin has submitted a tire supply bid for 2017 uh, because Pirelli's is – actually, I think uh, Pirelli's up later this year. Uh, I believe they were already approved for next year. Oh, were they approved for 2016? I think I saw that story that 16 was taken care of, but, you know, the the contract is not a long-term deal right now. The the issue, though, with Michelin's bid, Michelin doesn't like the current format. They do not want to be providing these high-degregation tires that are currently being used. And again, this is the specification that Formula One brought to Pirelli, but they do not like that. They also don't like the wheels. Oh. They want larger wheels. Formula One has, I believe it's 13-inch wheels, and that whole structure is part of the overall suspension. Now, last year, Formula One tr- uh, ran in a test larger wheels, but that changes the entire suspension structure of the car. Michelin says that larger nobody's using 13-inch wheels. This is stupid. Why are we doing this? More road-relevant to use larger wheels. That's what we want. Oh. It does not right now sound like the FIA is interested in larger wheels, but at least Michelin says, hey, we pitched them. Yeah. But, of course, if larger wheels were going to come in 2017, they need to get a plan for 2017 already. There you go. Now, potentially what could be causing the problem and and delaying decisions is Renault and their decision. Because Renault has come out and they have said that they will be making their decision as to what their future is for the sport in particular 2017, when some of their contracts run out the end of this year. Okay. As a result of the problems, though, that Renault is having, the war of words continues between Red Bull and Renault. Renault came out and said that, well, you know, all of this um, bad trash-talking and and all of the things that, that... Red Bull has been saying about us is really gone, and it's impacting the confidence of our engineers. Not their their piss poor performance. No, the things that Red Bull is saying that that's what's impacting their their confidence. Wah. But 
Dietrich Mateschitz, who's the owner of Red Bull Racing. Which he opened his mouth Toro again, Rosso. didn't he? Oh, yeah, came out big time and said that he is still annoyed, and this is diminishing his will and motivation to remain in the sport. Now, let's remember again, because he owns Red Bull Racing, that means he has not two two cars on the track, but six cars on the track. Oh, and the track that they're racing at this weekend. Mm Mm-hmm. Really? Okay. He also was uh, reported to have said that the engine performance that Renault has given them is not overcomable by any chassis or aero package at all, period, the end. And, you know, he is correct about that. I, I, I don't debate that. I don't dispute that. The problem I have. Please tell me it's the same problem I have. I don't, I don't know what the issue you have. But the issue I have is Red Bull is a drinks company. Oh, we don't have the same problem. Why is Red Bull in this series? They're not in this series to show off their engineering and technical prowess. Absolutely not. They are in this series to promote their drinks. Where do you get the most promotion for your drinks do you for your brand in general do you get it and and i get that winning a race is the ultimate validation of your efforts and your team and so on and so forth but if you're promoting your drink and you're in this series because the values and what this series is and it is this high-end sport technical sport that is within the lines of the value of your brand when you run away with the race and your brand is not in front of the cameras because you're winning and you're in the front and nobody is challenging you, are you getting nearly as much promotion as when your cars are in the middle of the race and constantly fighting for position and constantly getting airtime because they're in the middle of the battles and they're on the screen and your brand is on the screen and you're, and the media is covering your team and talking about your team before the race, during the race, and after the race. The problem is that Red Bull's drinks motto is Red Bull gives you wings. Mm-hmm. It means that you'd be faster, better, and more successful when you drink their drink than if you don't drink their drink. That is the concept. That's basic marketing 101. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. If their primary goal is to sell drinks, yes, they get more promotion when they're in battling in the middle. And I will tell you, they're getting a metric ton of promotion by arguing with Renup. Uh-huh. I get all of that. However... Where they want to be is first. Well, every and- team wants to be first, and you can't. But Red Bull has a a position in just about every single form of motorsports that there is. Yes, they do. Every single one. Red Bull has not been nearly as dominating in Formula One in any other auto sports. Red Bull is not always winning in all these other sports. They're not always in the front in all these other sports. But we don't hear them going, ah, we're taking our prime and we're going home. 
Well, well, actually, in their case, it'd be we're taking our case of Red Bull and we're going home. But <laughs> okay, there's that. But that's not my problem with okay. his statement. Back to his statement. Okay. Which is remember, no amount of arrow and suspension and chassis can overcome the underperformance of this engine. Mm-hmm. Why is Toro Rosso out qualifying them? That's not his point. Yes, Toro Rosso is out qualifying them, but they're still in the mid pack. No, He's I... saying that no amount of arrow and chassis and whatever improvements can make this engine perform well enough that we're going to be on a podium. Oh. That's that's what the statement is. I understand that, but I'm sorry. I, I I'm I'm terribly sorry. Your B team is doing better than your A team. It means that you're not bringing your A game to your A team. There's a problem with your car. But yes, you've got a bum engine. Yes, you're not getting the performance you should be getting. But you still have a bum car. But he wouldn't be making that comment if any one of those four cars, not two, four cars ended up on a podium. I understand that. If any one of those four four cars finished a race in fourth place, he probably wouldn't be making that comment. It's not about the, oh, Toro Rosso is doing better than Red Bull. It's that I can't get any one of these four cars where I want them to be. There's well, nothing to do with the Toro Rosso Red Bull thing. I understand that, but the Toro Rosso has got a, has got a better car right now than the Red Bull car. Yeah. That, it, oh, but it could also be that they have Max Verstappen, you know, the youngest driver in Formula One. Yes, well. This seems like a really good time to segue into something, but I know we haven't even talked about the Montreal Grand Prix. Well, I've got one other thing also in the ridiculousness of Formula One. Oh, so that that's what happened. this this podcast is actually just going to be about how ridiculous yeah. Formula One is. Well, you know, in, in our ongoing... Th- as a matter of fact, I think in the last couple of years, this story has now popped. And as much as I really want it to come true, this story has popped up almost as much as the Audi's going to come to Formula One story. Okay. We got word this week, and as a matter of fact, motorsport.com listed as breaking news that Bernie Eccleston is in fresh talks over the New Jersey F1 race. Oh, my word. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, he's also in fresh talks with Azubajan, too, so whatever. Well, no, that appears to be actually happening, despite the fact that they can't come up with a track that anybody thinks is going to be exciting. That appears to be happening. Okay. Yeah. But Hoboken, please tell me we're not going to Hoboken. Um, yeah, it's Hoboken. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Well, you know, keep in mind that much like we call Bayonne Cape Liberty, this is actually Port Imperial because nobody go to Hoboken. Nobody, nobody's going to go to a race in Hoboken. Come on. Okay. <laughs> Can we get a doctor to evaluate Bernie for, oh, dementia? I only say this because in the same breath that he's talking about opening up negotiations with New Jersey, he has also said, and he was quoted as, 
telling the um, Formula One powers that be, I told them they are giving me crap to sell. That's his statement for why Formula One needs to change. Okay, let's start with one. Who the hell are you sending to, selling to? Two, how are you selling it? Three, actually, I don't have a three yet. Give me a second. I'll think. <laughs> okay, so when he was later asked about this comment, he backpedaled pretty quickly. And the 84-year-old says, really? I don't know who said that. Bad quote. Goes on to say, the product at the moment is a bit top-heavy. This is from Bernie. With one team winning a lot of races, probably too easy. So when Ferrari are getting their act together, we've seen a big improvement and exactly the same thing happens with McLaren. There are always people complaining about something. The winners never complain, the losers complain. All I've ever said is that it's a pity that one team at the moment is dominating the sport. Wait, I have a three now. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent, what's your three? He's part of the reason the rules look like this and the financial packages look like this. I think we have just solved F1's problem. We have solved F1's problem. Get rid of Bernie. Moving on. Bernie needs to retire. No, I think I translate Bernie's comments to Bernie will only be happy if Ferrari is winning. Well, yeah. Absolutely. I think that's the problem with the The, sport. The only team that... Well, the team that matters the most to Bernie, and and he has made this clear, is Ferrari. He has a lot of respect for Williams because he likes Frank. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of okay with McLaren. Um, I don't think he likes Ron Dennis, but he's he's okay with McLaren just because they've been around. Mm -hmm. The others, unless they're bringing him lots of money, they can all go to hell in his eyes. Yeah. He doesn't care about him. His feeling is, go spend less money and then win. Yeah. Even though you can't. We're going to stack all the odds against you, give all the coins to Ferrari, and Ferrari's still not winning. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, Montreal. We're not going to talk too much about Montreal because... We were on a ship and we didn't see it. We've heard all the recap. I still need to get some audio because apparently the only real drama came from McLaren. Excellent. Um, neither car finished, which – oh, this is ridiculous already. At it, it, some point, somebody's going to lose patience. And, and uh, you know, maybe we need to start the pool of who's going to lose patience first. Is it going to be Honda? Is it going to be McLaren? Or is it going to be Fernando Alonso? Now, we've seen some signs that Fernando may be breaking. And I don't know if this audio has made it out to the American audience, but we heard about it from a lot of the British audience that apparently around lap 16, Fernando was told he needs to start saving fuel. Mm -hmm. 16 out of like a 50-something lap race. And Fernando got really, really mad. And from reading the transcript, it kind of made him sound like a, a five-year-old. Excellent. That he came up and basically said, don't want to, don't want to. We're looking like amateurs. Excellent. Yeah. Um, I don't have a whole lot of comments about 
the Montreal race that I have not seen yet. Um, we will catch up on it. I, I'm sure that we will. But what I know is that McLaren's lack of finishing this year really explains why I got a team shirt for five pounds. Yes. But now but I... Well, it was that. And it was also because it was a McLaren Mercedes shirt, not a McLaren Honda shirt. Well, yeah, but still. I also got a Jensen t-shirt. Yes. So with that in mind, I have the story to share. Now, I will preface this to say that this is not real. Okay. This is some commentary that uh, the folks over at sniffpetrol.com put out there. And by the way, this site is the the, the chief writer also writes Top Gear scripts, so you can see where this is going. Okay. So the headline is Alonzo buys Mercedes engine. Oh, my. McLaren morale dropped again today with news that frustrated Fernando Alonso has bought himself a Mercedes engine. Mercedes sell customer engines, so Fernando has become a customer, explained a source close to the Spanish driver. It's being delivered tomorrow, and then he'll insist the team fits it to his MP430, even if it makes the engine cover a bit lumpy. (laughs) The installation of a Mercedes engine to Alonso's McLaren is certain to change the tone of radio messages the former champion relays to his pit wall during the race, moving from, there's a funny whale whale during the race— Oh, excuse me. There's a funny noise, and everything has stopped working. And what do you mean, save fuel? If I go any slower, I'll be stopped to more upbeat communications, such as saying, it's saying mode two. Could you look in the manual in my bag in the motorhome to see what I do next? And there's a blue light come on with, like a picture of a desk fan or something. Can you run down to the Mercedes pit and ask them what it might mean? Meanwhile, beleaguered Jensen Button has yet to follow his teammate in buying a Mercedes engine, but is said to be more optimistic about his pace in the next Grand Prix, having just picked up some Toyo tires off of eBay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that sounds like the onion of F1. Um, kind of. They they talk about other stuff too. I mean, there was a whole talk about uh, Chris Evans being named as the new host, and story about where they actually came up and how they came up with the some say intros for the Stig. Ah. Um. Some, so there's some good stuff in there, but um, that brings me now to Austria, and we have to stay with McLaren here. Okay. Can I just because- stop and tell you one thing? Let let me get this out first, because McLaren has been penalized so badly for Austria that they may be starting the race in Barcelona. <laughs> Seriously, between the two cars, they got 50 positions of grid penalties. Let's review for a second. Their penalties were so great that if if one of the cars had qualified first, which was an utter impossibility, they still would have had a five-grid penalty to serve during the race. Plus possibly a stop and go. Yes. Um, that said, and that is a great lead-in to what I was going to say, I have to tell you that whatever Jensen is on to make him the most positive pitch man for his company. It ran out this week. I swear 
you could only hope to have somebody that is willing to say, I know it really sucks out there, but it's going to be better next week. Yeah, that that ran out. I mean, and again, hopefully we will have the audio for you next week of of Jensen's post-qualifying comments. Um, But the air was definitely let out of his his balloon. Um, But that's the first time I've ever seen a chink in his armor on that. This year. I mean, yeah. we, we've heard it before from him. At some point, he does get beat down. Um, but, yeah, he definitely sounded depressed and disappointed. And I don't recall whether it was in the commentary for the press, the pre-race uh, press conferences for this race or for Montreal, where they both Jensen and um, Fernando were sitting next to the Honda boss who's talking about how optimistic they were feeling, and the two of them were kind of hiding behind the brim of their caps and wouldn't look up and wouldn't comment and wouldn't say a word at the press conference. Ooh. Yeah. But at some point, and and we know it happens because it happened at Ferrari and it's happened everywhere else. At some point, Fernando's going to lose it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's just going to lose it. So, there's that. Sorry, I'm trying to find the quote, so continue uh, on. What quote are you looking for? The Jensen quote. Oh, again, we'll have it next week. Don't worry about it. Okay. Um, other interesting news. Former, and I have to phrase it this way. Former Ferrari driver, Felipe Massa, this past weekend during uh, one of the free practices almost ran down current Ferrari boss Maurizio Arrivabene. Really? In the pit lane. Yes. Apparently, he um, wasn't exactly looking where he was going as he was crossing from the pit wall over to the Ferrari pits, uh, possibly being distracted because Sebastian Vettel's car was in pieces in in the pits and uh, ran across or or started to run across the pit wall just as Felipe Massa was coming out of his pit box. Oh, my. Um, It was close. Uh, However, the Williams and modern F1 brakes being what they are, Massa stopped in plenty of time and did not run down (laughs) Maurizio. Apparently, they they, uh, joked about the incident later on. Oh, good. Um, but apparently a glance was shared between the two men with Arriva Benes appearing to say, yeah, that was pretty dumb. Sorry. <laughs> so provisional pit uh, grid. Yes. Um, in qual- Actually, before I even jump into that, as we left qualifying. Yes. We ended up, you know, with a fairly dull Q3. Q3. Uh, Q1 and Q2 were a little odd with the wet track and Lewis just not there. Yeah. He kept coming in just under Nico in the top bits of Q1 and Q2. Well, overall, he was really slow. I mean, he ended up coming out of Q1. Um, at one point, it didn't. It, it looked like he was going to get bumped out of at Q1. I know. I mean, it was not pretty. Um, with... 
Max Verstappen doing extremely well. You know, he's the youngest Formula One driver. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> he has driven this course before, by the way, in Formula Three. Yes. It's not new to him, nor his teammate, Carlos Sanz, who's also very young. Not quite as young, though. But not quite as young. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we get to Q1, or Q3, rather, and Lewis, in, I think it was his second hot lap, actually sets a pole time. Mm-hmm. Um, they do a change of tires. Uh, Lewis has finally got this figured out not to let Nico go out after him, not to... Or not to let Nico go out before him, not to back off partway through a lap or any of these other things. Comes around for his second flying lap and just drifts over and catches the white line coming out of the start-finish straight and spins into turn one. Yes, he does. Nico is doing his fast and sets down a blisteringly fast lap behind Lewis. Looked for all the world like Nico was going to have it, and as he comes out of turn eight into nine, there's only nine turns on this track, he drifts over, catches the AstroTurf on the edge, and loses traction and goes off at turn nine, thereby keeping Lewis with his pole. Yes. But, I mean, so very close to having lost his pole, I mean, that was a very dramatic end for both of them to have sort of critical mistakes right there. But we have some sizable penalties between the 50, 25 each going to McLaren. There were 20 grid space penalties, 10 each going to Red Bull. Mm -hmm. I can only assume that Red Bull's penalties are going to start racking up here. Now, there was some strategy here with these penalties. Keep that in mind. The thought was take the penalties in Austria for both of these teams. Austria is known as a high-power track. Right. And both McLaren and Red Bull knew that they didn't have a chance of doing very well at this track. But (coughs) even though Austria is Red Bull's track, home track, everybody wants to do well in Silverstone. Right. That's the next race. So take them now so they don't have to take them in Silverstone. Eric Boulier had an interesting quote um, about the qualifying session this year. Um, He's obviously racing director for McLaren, Mm -hmm. and you had mentioned earlier that they took a combined 50-grid penalty. Yeah. So this is his quote. It's kind of long, but I found it just kind of interesting. When you embark on a qualifying session saddled with the discouraging foreknowledge that your two drivers will be given a combined total of 50-grid prices by way of penalties, it's not easy to keep one's chin up. But McLaren Honda is one team, and our esprit de corps is truly edifying. Moreover, despite the fact that we'll start tomorrow's race in the back of the grid, and notwithstanding the certitude that our drive-through and stop-and-go penalties will disadvantage us further, there are, in fact, reasons to be cheerful today. Tricky to spot, though they may be. In fact, for example, our aero upgrades have delivered a useful performance step, and in future we can expect positive increment to translate in track position and, indeed, world championship points. But that won't obviously eventuate, eventuate, he says, tomorrow. 
Nonetheless, both Fernando and Jensen will race their hearts out tomorrow as they always do. With sterling efforts will be, my view, will be rendered in the most admirable but inevitable fact that they will go unrewarded when it comes to allotting scores at the doors at the end of the afternoon. You know, I'm kind of surprised, given how bad these penalties were going to be, <coughs> that McLaren didn't just go, crap, I don't know where we put the steering wheels for these two cars <laughs> before Q3, and just said to hell with it. Well, the problem is anything that they got in the qualifier shortened their stop and goes and their penalties during yeah. the race. but. They're not going to get any points out of this. Mm-mm. Might as well turn around, let those stop and goes rack up, give yourself as much clear air as possible to start the, for the first couple of laps so that your two drivers can go and run in clear air and get some good arrow testing out of it in clear air during the race. And do that. And true, but... I mean, they can't be blatant about not running. Mm-hmm. Because we have, we saw what happened to and the complaints that were made last year with Sebastian Vettel and Red Bull when that possibility might have happened after an engine change for him, but still. Oh yeah. Anyway, so I think the story of the Austria Grand Prix is going to be penalties. I think that's the story. Yeah, pretty much. It, and that, I believe, is leading us into the conversation about the rules being too complex, that things need to change. We should not be at the halfway point of the season and have a team, which arguably should be a top team, starting from, oh, another track. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I get some of, some of the... the idea behind this and the intention behind this was to stop back in the days when tobacco money was flooding into F1 in the 90s and the 80s of we run one engine for each qualifying session. We we run a different engine for the race and a different engine for the practice. Yeah. I get that. Those are expensive and we need to get away from that along the same lines to prevent the, okay, we, we... flog an engine for a race and we need new engines every race it was to control costs and to increase reliability it's a noble idea but you also need to turn around and make concessions to when a team needs to figure out what they screwed up exactly and to stop making it to the point that the penalties are so drastic and so severe that when they get it wrong or they ha- they're just having a string of bad luck that they're now com- – they, they have no hope of ever recovering, ever. Well, that's the thing is they're going to have to put the nail in this season by a quarter or halfway through the season because they are so far behind. Yeah, because at that point the penalties have just racked up to the point that there is nothing that can be done. Exactly. Um. I think that we're getting close to our hour mark, are we not? Yes. So we should probably wrap this up. Yep. Um, in the coming weeks, not only are we going to be talking about the aftermath of uh, the Grand Prix of Austria, which or the Austrian Grand Prix. 
I do believe we have made it through the entire show without you screwing up Austria versus Australia. So our drinking game, pretty dull. See, this is what happens when you ruin it. I didn't ruin it. Anyway, uh, we will have talk of that. We will also go back to our roots and do a review of our trip to Bermuda and the Celebrity Solstice, and, or excuse me, the Celebrity Summit, and all of the changes that have come in the last year. Correct. Um, this was an eye-opening experience. If you ever thought that those surveys that you get at the end of a cruise don't have any impact after this trip, I can honestly say I think they do. Excellent. Excellent. Um. So we will do that. We will probably talk about some things that are coming out of the lab, the test facilities. Yes, quirky. I'm angry at you. <laughs> but that said, we do need to end this show. We have the summer doldrums coming up. So stay tuned for more than just F1. But we are, quick reminder as we walk out, um, Leave a comment for us over at www.theblokeandabird.com or over on the Facebook page. All you need to do is do a search for Bloke and the Bird Show. And I'm still waiting on reviews, whether it's over in Spotify or over in iTunes. We want to hear from you. Stitcher. Stitcher. I don't know why I keep doing it. There's your drink. <laughs> <laughs> on Stitcher. <laughs> and, uh, on that flub, we'll call it a show. <laughs>